morning we're in Revelation chapter 15. As always, we're not attempting to set down the details of the last days, but we're rather trying to get to the spiritual heart of the matter that God is communicating to his people in all generations since the writing of this book, the completion of his word. I think that in some ways it's an extended application section to our last sermon, our last sermon that's so focused on these great and awesome works of God and his works of justice and pouring out his wrath upon his enemies. And in some sense, this sermon is about what happens in response. The question, who shall not fear you, O Lord? Well, the heart of it is in, chapter, in, in verses 3 and 4. And verse 3 identifies the Old Testament frame of reference. Almost every chapter of Revelation has one or several. In this case, it says, they sing the great, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. So the frame of reference is the song of Moses. And the song of Moses was sung in response to God's great and mighty works after the Exodus, of rescuing his people and destroying his enemies. And it called out for this act of worship as a celebration of God's incomparable ways, his attributes and his works. God simply cannot be compared with human beings, cannot be compared with the false gods that the nations worship and serve. And it demands true and abject worship, nothing reserved, nothing held back. Now, there are actually two passages that could be called the Song of Moses. You probably know this. First being in Exodus 15. I'm, I'm going to read abbreviated, abridged versions of both of these so we understand where this is coming from. But uh, in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. That's the summation. In verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Verse 13. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. What are the themes here? Well, the display of God's incomparable greatness and power, his victory over his enemies, his eternal reign, his holiness, fearfulness, wrath, sovereign grace, and mercy to save his elect people. Well, the other of these two songs is in Deuteronomy 32, and we'll eventually get there in our evening series, Lord willing, but... It says in verse 3, ascribe greatness to our God, for all of his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves, a perverse and crooked generation. Verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. They shall be, in verse 24, they shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. Verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense 
but the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for I, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. What are the themes? It's the very same. The display of God's incomparable greatness and power, his victory over his enemies, eternal reign, his holiness, fearfulness, wrath against sin, and sovereign grace and mercy to his elect people. And that brings us then, if that's the song of Moses, that's the song, and they are singing an abbreviated version of it. It is intended to, by giving us this frame of references, intended to bring us back to these things and to recall them. And if that is the situation, then the question then in verse 4, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? If this be the case with God, if he is like this, if his works are like as I have just described, as God's word has just described, in more than one place, then who shall not worship and glorify him? You see, the Lord is making the case to fear God and worship and serve him. These people, these saints, these angels are making the case for us. It's like the opposite of what happens in Isaiah 41:21, When the Lord says derisively to the idols, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Do something that will separate you from being the work of a mere creature, Do something that will separate you from those who are without power and and unable either to judge or to bless. No such case can be made for the false gods, but just such a strong case can be made for the Lord God. And in every situation in Scripture that we have such things, the clear application, the clear point of all that is that we fear and worship God. And so that's the title here. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, given these things? And then there are those three rationales given, summaries of these things. First, for you alone are holy. Second, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Third, for your judgments have been manifested. These are the rationales that the Lord himself gives as to why all should fear and worship him. So first, you alone, for you alone are holy. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God's holiness, if you had to rank things, is the number one ranked reason and rationale for why we should worship God. It is that way throughout Scripture. It is the the number one thing that ought to lead us to worship. And what is holiness? Well, as we've said, first and foremost is absolute moral perfection. That's what we think of when we think of holiness. And we're not wrong. It says absolute moral perfection. But also, connected with that, in a larger sense, it says, a certain commentator, Greg Beale, would put it, the sum of divine attributes distinguishing God from his creation It's his otherness. It's everything that is different about God. That's his holiness. He's set apart. 
We mentioned, we gave the example of various utensils and household things that are set apart there, and that way, holy in a way, set apart from common use. Well, God is set apart from his creation. And all the attributes and all the works that would set him apart from any aspect of his creation, that is part of his holiness in this larger sense. And you can see that as we go through some Old Testament passages that, that speak of that and speak of the necessity then for worshiping him. In 1 Corinthians 16.29, Give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Of course, we have this aspect of the beauty of holiness that we'll see again. But doing this, gladly and publicly acknowledging the incomparable greatness of God is simply giving him his due. If you didn't do that, you wouldn't be giving him his due. Or Psalm 5, 7, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. So first he comes talking about with the thought in his mind. The, he's coming in the guise of God's great mercy. And then he immediately speaks of coming in the fear of God. Now, the people in the world cannot possibly get their, their hand around this, because it, their, their arms around this. It does not sound possible. It seems so completely uh, contrary to our expectation that you would, on the one hand, be thinking of God's mercy, and on the other hand, you'd be coming in the fear of God. But that is precisely what God's word teaches. That whatever we know of God's mercy and his great grace to his own people never leads us to a position of over-familiarity and comfort when it comes to being in God's presence. Rather, those things lead to us a greater fear of God in the true biblical sense of that word. In Psalm 29.1, Give unto the Lord, you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And here, again, the sheer beauty of God's holiness. There are many different kinds of beauty in this world. And we all, there's, of course, physical beauty. And then we can speak of the, the, the beauty of perhaps engineering solutions. And we see their beautiful simplicity and their perfection and all the rest of it. Beauty of mathematics, things like that. But there is no beauty like moral beauty. Because it's so rare. When is the last time you've seen someone who is perfectly holy? Well, of course, you've never seen anyone on this earth who's been perfectly holy. And when you even see someone who's comparably, for a moment, a little bit more holy than average, we say he's a saint. Well, God's holiness is utterly different than that. And it is so pure it is beautiful beyond comparison. And we worship him because of it. Psalm 96, 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Beauty of holiness. It's beautiful. We're attracted to it. But at the same time, when we see it, we tremble. Because it's so different. It's alien. It's strange. You know, when we, we speak of... Uh, Sadly, it's not too far away from that, uh, um, that uh, holiday called Halloween. Already in America, as we were leaving, there were shops setting up that, whose whole purpose in life was to sell uh, Halloween merchandise. And you see, the, the element 
that is twisted in this is that, that this occult and these ghosts and goblins and all the vampires and all the rest of it, these things are, are different. And there's a hallowedness to it. It's, it's different because it's not like us. And, and these spirits and so forth exist on a different plane than us. And it's scary. And, and in some sense, the popularity of it happens because the holiness of God is utterly absent in our culture. We do not come into the presence of a holy God in our worship services. It's overly familiar. It's contemptible. And how much we desire somewhere, every once in a while, to come into the presence of something that is utterly different. Well, true worship service ought to do it because when we see the Lord in the beauty of it, not in the repulsiveness of the occult, but in the beauty of holiness, yet we tremble before him. He's utterly unlike anyone or anything you've ever encountered. Psalm 99, just one last of these psalms, speaks of the twin aspects of God's holiness and his wrath towards his enemies. There's holiness, there's wrath towards his enemies, and also mercy towards his people. And these things both combine to incite our worship. It says in verse 4, The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And then in verse 8, You answered them, O Lord our God. You are to them God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds, exalt the Lord our God. And worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. He is holy indeed. He takes vengeance on the deeds of his people. He executes his fierce wrath, either on them or on their substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he is merciful and gracious. And in these very things, and you see the perfect, inexorable holiness of God. And both of these things combine to make us worship him. Well, we see the holiness of God, and we see this in the larger sense, the immeasurable contrast between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And that's part of it, you see. We don't just lift up God and lift up man. We lift up God and we abase man. Sometimes people wonder why it's necessary in, in sermons to be down on people. The reason why we're down on people is because it's the only way to display the holiness of God. God's word throughout from beginning to end is holding these things in, in the greatest of contrast, the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Isaiah 6.3, a man whom I think was holier than usual. Isaiah himself comes and he sees what goes on in heaven. One cried to the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's this great distance. That is the pinnacle of worship. When you see the greatness of God and the unworthiness and sinfulness of man, then you are lit. You're brought to this place of true worship. And of course, those of you who have followed this line of thought before know also another place in Scripture would be Peter's reaction to the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5 8. And Peter sees what, what happened. You, you, you know the problem, right? Um, 
Christ in his humility, in his state of humiliation, did not have anything that would outwardly display his glory. He did not go around wearing the accoutrements of the creator of the universe. And therefore, his power and his holiness were not physically recognizable. But then he sort of pulls back the the veil and he creates this miraculous catch of fish, the sort of miracle that only a fisherman could truly appreciate. And Simon Peter saw it and he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me for I am a sinful man. Jesus didn't say a word about his sin. At no point did he, he enumerate the sins of this man. What he demonstrated was his own awesomeness and in its true sense. His greatness and his holiness and his utterly separation, his utter separation from his creatures. And that immediately and rightfully brought Peter's mind to his own sinfulness and unworthiness. Now, with all of that background, what do we see in Revelation 15? Well, it says in verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory of the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. What are the harps for? They're to worship God. Why are they worshiping God? Because they are witnessing his incomparable greatness, his holiness, his utter otherness as he is pouring out his wrath upon the inhabitants of this earth. And in all that which we saw last time as we spoke these difficult words how God is glorified in his wrath being poured out on sinners, the destruction of sinners, and just the great power of this wrath. This is the application of it. His people are worshiping him in heaven. They're singing this song because of the holiness of God, the holy wrath of God. Well, the second rationale is for all nations shall come and worship before you. As it says in verse 4, all nations shall come and worship before you. My thesis here is rather simple. It's just that the the incomparable greatness of the true God demands that people from all over the world worship him. You know the simple equation. In the Old Testament, these idols are local. These false gods, they are utterly local. They are tied to a certain place and a certain time. But the contrast, and that's okay. That suits them because they're not very great. They're not very holy. They're not very different from the people who created them. They're just like them, in fact. And then on the other way, those who worship and become just like these rather loser-type gods. And it perfectly befits them that they should only have a few people of a certain ethnic group, of a certain language, to worship them. But the real God is not like that. His greatness, his holiness, his perfections demand that people from all over the world worship him. That's what it says in Jeremiah, and I think that this is one of those direct sort of uh, appropriations that are, we find throughout Revelation. Jeremiah 10, 6 says, or 6, 7 says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. There's none like God. He's incomparable. And therefore, 
all the nations should fear him because that's his rightful due. And so we find in things like Philippians 2.9, God has exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every name, that at, every, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This idea that it's not merely those on one plane even. We didn't just, we're not just talking about one region, but every plane, not just earth, but also those in heaven and also those under the earth should all give praise and glory to this God who is so great, this incarnate God, Jesus Christ. And so throughout Revelation, we've seen this, this theme again. In Revelation 5.9, they sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not just a few. Or in Revelation 7.9, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with right robes, palm branches in their hands, crying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. If God were not great then it would be perfectly fitting that only certain tribes and tongues, certain places, certain spheres should worship him. But if God truly is the creator of this whole universe, if God indeed is the redeemer of people from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven, then it is only right that they give him worship. And so... We remember, even in the previous chapter, this concept of the gospel going to every place on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Yes, because of the love of God the Father towards us. Why is that happening? The love of God, we know that. But also, because his greatness demands that he take for himself a people out of every tribe and tongue under heaven. The idols are local. But God's greatness is universal and so must be his worshipers. All nations shall come and worship you. And thirdly and finally, for your judgments have been manifested. And I'm not going to belabor this because this was so much the the topic last week and the the wrath of God being poured out on, on sinners. But this is the immediate context of what happened in, verse, in, in chapter 14 is the context. What happens in the beginning of chapter 15 is the context for this song. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And likewise, what happens immediately after this song tells us about these things. In verse 7, then, having, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter his temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. And you get the picture of the furnace of God's wrath. And as he's pouring out his wrath on the peoples of this earth, his righteous wrath, because they so deserve to have their wicked deeds judged. Indeed, some of the context of this certainly is an answer to the prayers of the very saints in heaven. 
the content of these prayers that is being pictured here, the content of that prayer is that these people, their persecutors, their tormentors on earth would be judged. How long, O Lord, till you bring our persecutors to justice? What's happening right now? And the intensity of this wrath, the intensity of this judgment, it's like a furnace of fire and smoke is pouring off of it. And the glory of God is being seen in ever brighter dimensions and colors to the point at which you can't even be in the presence. Human creatures cannot be in the presence of such a furnace as he's pouring out his wrath. Those people, those martyrs earlier on in Revelation, asking, praying that God would bring about justice on the earth and vengeance on their blood. Well, we know that they are sinless saints. They're not sinning. And we know that if we ask anything according to his will, if our our prayers are not admixed with wrong motives and sin and all the rest of it, then we know for certain that they'll be answered. Well, their prayer is now being answered to the fullest, isn't it? And as these things are going around around them, they're not silent. But the people, the inhabitants, the angels, and no doubt the, the saints respond in worship, singing the song of Moses. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? How do we apply these things to ourselves? I mentioned in some sense this is an extended application section of of thinking about the wrath of God. Well, first of all, I'd say very simply that the only true world religion is Christianity. Okay? Some fear the worldwide takeover is love. And I understand that. It's a, a scary prospect, but I personally do not. For the simple reason that a religion for all nations under heaven is the sole prerogative of Jesus Christ alone. Yes, it's absolutely true that the Antichrist is going to deceive all the nations. It's made very clear that, the, well, for instance, in Revelation 12:9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Well, he's been doing that from the very beginning. And he has not achieved, he has not been able to make a transcendent religion for every tribe and tongue under heaven. The way he does it is through perversions of truth that are local perversions, local in time and local in space in various ways. They are all contextual. All of Satan's false religions, everything that the Antichrist does is necessarily contextual, specific to the time and place, to the proclivities of the people that he is deceiving. You know, a hundred years ago, most Hindus were from the Indian subcontinent. You know what? Still true today. A hundred years ago, most who followed Confucius were from China. You know what? Still true. A hundred years ago, most Muslims were Asian. You know what? Still true today. But you cannot say that about Christianity. There are tens of millions of white Christians spread over the three continents of North America, Australia, and Europe. There are also tens of millions of South American Christians in Brazil and Argentina and Peru and Mexico. Tens of millions of African Christians in Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, South Africa, and so on. 
tens of millions of Asian Christians in China, Korea, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Did you know that representatives of all of these listen, come to the website of our denomination and listen to the sermons of this little denomination of 15 churches on this little island? Yes, yeah, why? How is that possible? Why would a Chinese Christian ever bother to hear sermons that are not Chinese? Or why would Ukrainians ever want to hear a sermon that's not, not from a Ukrainian? Why? Well, what holds them, what unites them, is not human culture, not this, the specific aspects of their context. What unites them is the precious gospel that we all hold in common and the transcendent word of God that displays its power by the very fact that it's transcendent and not at all dependent No part of the message is dependent upon the specific context. All nations will worship him. That is his prerogative alone. What shall we do? We therefore have the greatest reason to engage in missions. Here in Gateshead, in Sheffield, and in Hexham, and yes, in Kenya, and Berlin. Who do we think we are? We don't know these places very well, do we? How do we think that we can do it? Well, the reason why we know that we can and we must engage in the work of missions is because we know that despite momentary setbacks, it is going to work. Not because of human methods, not because our sociology is so good. Not because our business model is so amazing. But because we know that Christ is jealous for his glory. And we know that he is determined that all nations under heaven will worship him. And moreover, we know that this gospel works in every place. It is one gospel preached to all the nations under heaven. And so the only application of the reality that all nations shall worship him is that we must send the gospel into every nation and every opportunity we have. Second, the only true worship is in holiness. If it's true that the the one thing that makes it most certain that Christ would be worshipped, the rationale that immediately follows the, the question, who shall not fear you and glorify your name, If it's the fact that he is holy, he alone is holy, what does that imply about our worship service? Put two and two together. If that is the thing that is most likely, voted most likely by God's own word to incite true worship, then what should our worship service be like? It implies, very simply, not to insult your intelligence, but it implies that those who would worship should be exposed to the perfect and alone holiness of God the moral dimension that we mentioned which is the core of it his perfect holiness but in the larger sense of his utter unlikeness his difference his alienness to us he's so different it's hard to describe how different he is now one of the misunderstandings when we speak about such things to, to our brethren who have a different way of worshiping, one of the misunderstandings is that it entails some kind of holier-than-thou approach, that we imagine that we ourselves are, are holy and that we're pointing to our own righteousness. And sadly, I think that that is possible. That's the sort of Pharisee that the, the service that the Pharisees would have liked, wouldn't it? 
uh, kind of uh, service that, uh, that everyone looks around to each other and says how holy and how righteous and wonderful we are. That is not what we're talking about. We've said that part of it is necessarily drawing this greatest possible contrast. We're not just pointing to God's perfect holiness. We're also in recognition of our abject sinfulness and unworthiness to be here. And in reaction against some things, this idea of perceived fake holiness and holier-than-thou ideas, some people say we want something real. They look at people and they're puffing themselves up as if they are something righteous and holy and they say that's disingenuous and we want something real. And what they mean is that they want a, a service that's earthy and people look grungy and, and though they would never say so, that worldly. And we're, at least we don't have any pretension Maybe a pretension to coolness, but in, in general, we don't have, at least we don't have a pretension to being holy. Well, again, they've got one thing right, but not the other. There should never be the slightest pretension that we ourselves are holy. We're here to worship the one who is holy. The thing that we're putting on display is not ourselves, but precisely his alone holiness. And so we strive to make the greatest possible contrast between the reality of human sin, of which we are all cases in point. That's the great thing. It's almost some element of what we see on a cosmic level as the saints in heaven see the glory of God there before them in heaven, and they can also see the wrath of God being poured out on the sinners in hell, and they, they have all this right there before them. Well, you and I don't have to look very far to see the sinfulness and unworthiness of man because we're here. We can see it. But what's on display is a holy God. And you must see this holiness if you're to worship him. We must see it. And so, in the worship, the, the style of worship that we use... In the manner of worship, we must strive to put on display this holy God. It is no easy task. It is not to be minimized. But we must be clear, at least, in our goal. And I would say also that you can see then the, the great, the vast difference that there is between worshiping God and entertaining goats. You see, entertainment only happens when we keep things at a low level. And the object in view are just exaggerated forms of the familiar. Right? When people go to a theater, they don't mind seeing other people in danger. They don't, they don't mind seeing other people shot or, or whatever. That's titillating. That's exciting. It's a different matter if someone brings a, a gun and starts shooting at them. That's no longer entertainment. That's no longer fun. Well, in, with some sort of connection to that, that distinction, entertainment happens when things are kept on the familiar and comfortable and safe level. Worship happens when you're exposed to a God who in some sense is not safe. He is a holy and wrathful, almighty God. He is not governed by us. He is sovereign. He does as he please. And he is utterly unlike anything that we've ever seen. Utterly unlike all that we know on earth. And so it cannot be about entertainment. Jesus, you know, who is just like us with some maybe some superpowers added to him, that's entertaining, isn't it? He's like us in every way except maybe exaggerated. 
But to Jesus, who is too pure to countenance sin, who brings sinners to judgment, whose obedience entails the loss of his own life, that's not quite so entertaining anymore. And we might just be tempted to bow down before such a one. And if we did, then we'd know what it was like to worship. So we need to worship in the holiness of God. And then lastly, briefly, the true Jesus Christ is both judge and savior. You see, the thing is, his judgments have been manifested. And we know that there is coming a day when it is too late to do anything about that yourself, that your, your fate is sealed, as it were. And here in this chapter, we, there is coming a day in which no one was able to enter the temple. We've said previously that there's a point at which the voice of the bride and the bridegroom will cease. There'll be no more gospel. There'll be no more opportunity. The day of salvation will have ended. And so that one response will at some point be closed off to you. But it's not yet. If indeed his judgments have been manifested, if indeed this holy God, this Christ Jesus, has been portrayed to you, then you yet have the opportunity to believe in him. You yet have the opportunity to fear him. Those two things, by the way, are synonymous. Those who fear God, those who believe in God, it's the same thing. You remember that great question which which sort of governs this, this chapter and this sermon, who will not fear you? And the inhabitants of heaven are looking at the perfections of God his holiness, how he has both, both judged the wicked and saved his people at infinite cost. And he says, who would not fear you? How crazy would it be for you to see this God, you to see this Christ and not your, put your faith in him, not fear him, not become his worshiper? That's what you should do. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, it is difficult even for us to fathom just how great you are, just how holy you are, because we're so unholy. Lord, of course we want you to wink at sin because we wink at sin ourselves. We're such sinners. And Lord, we, despite ourselves, always want the edge taken off. As Lord, you are so holy, you're so utterly unlike us. And Lord, we cannot be in your presence without thinking of just how sinful, how fallen short we are, just how unworthy we are. And of course, it makes us uncomfortable. But we recognize, Lord, that this is the way that you are. We recognize this is how you revealed yourself to us and how we pray that our worship might begin to match up to this reality. And Lord, as we consider the question that is asked from heaven, who will not worship you? Lord, the rationale is long and it is convincing. And we ought to worship and fear you. And we pray, Lord God, that we would. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.